0: Welcome to episode 157 of the 1099 for the week of July 16th, 2018. I'm your host, Josiah Renodden, and with me today is a co-founder of Villa Gorilla, a former lead designer at LucasArts, a former lead designer at Starbreeze, and one of the minds behind a 2018 favorite of mine, Yoku's Island Express, Jens Andersen. Jens, thanks so much for doing this. How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Actually, it was, uh, it was right after I started playing your most recent game, and I guess your studio's first game, that... I reached out and said, like, I-, I need to know what went into this and talk to people <laughs> behind it. So first off, congratulations on your studio's first release. I mean, Thank have you, you had a chance to go on vacation, to take a break at all? Or is this kind of the period where you're working on squashing possible bugs and and doing as much as you can to promote the game?
1: Um, well, it's it's starting to settle down quite a bit now. Uh, the launch was kind of smooth, so there hasn't been too much urgent stuff. But there's obviously all the PR and everything going on, and like there's a patch coming out and some stuff like that. So semi busy, but now. I'm starting to relax a bit, which is nice.
0: Do you almost get like paranoid when the launch is that smooth? I know you've worked in AAA for a <laughs> while, so you're used to not saying disasters, but having those moments of like, oh god, everything's on fire when there aren't as many fires to put out. Do you kind of have the moment where you start looking for them
1: out of just habit? Uh, I don't know. Um, I don't think so. Like it, it's pretty. Like you can get all the information you want, and actually, I'm I'm one of those people who don't really go out looking like I have a really hard time looking at let's play stuff for people playing your own game and stuff mm. like that it's it's draining like <laughs> th- there's nothing you can do if some, something goes wrong so so I sort of shut off and and if there's a big fire you'll hear about it, hear about it anyway Yeah, and thankfully, you have a publisher and PR people to look at all those videos and
0: and read all those reviews for you so that you don't have to actually do that yourself. Uh, So, Villarilla was founded in 2013, and five years later, you have this first game come out, and I I was reading interviews with you before we started doing this podcast, and I know you're someone who wanted to make more games in a shorter span of time, so what have you learned (laughs) since first starting the studio about game development or about yourself that, that that changed that timeline for you what was the moment of oh man maybe i'm not going to be able to make you know five games in five years or anything crazy like that
1: yeah no that was definitely an assumption at at one point uh, during my career that oh it takes too long to make games uh how can i make more of them in a shorter time span and n- being naive i thought making smaller games would be would be it Uh, it would be um, the smaller the game, the quicker you can finish it. And that was just plain wrong. Um, It's not about the size of the game. Um, Bigger game, you have a bigger team. Smaller game, you have a smaller team. Uh, But if you want to make something good, I think it takes about the same time, no matter what you do. Um, At least that's my feeling right now. Maybe that changes. Um, uh, As I think any... Game designer out there is going to tell you, or pretty much anyone working in the games industry, there are like a hundred ideas in your head and you get to make one of them. <laughs> um, and you, of course you pick the best one, but like there are still a hundred good ideas, or at least 99 of them, good ideas still in there that, that you won't be able to make. And that's, sort of a, that's a little bit sad. And that's why I wanted to make more games in in a shorter time span, but I've sort of given up on that now. Pick a game that that you can stick with until it's done. That's sort of the best you can hope for, and, and make it as good as you can. And it takes takes time to make a good game.
0: Yeah, and even though you're indie and maybe you're not making games at the scale and size that you were before, like this this project is still massive. I mean, the size of uh the game can be staggering at times. Like when I I remember doing a zoom out of the map. When I was playing mm-hmm. the game early on, had a one or two holy shit moments of just going back and be like, "Wow, there's a lot to do here." Because you get this, you know, very fun art style. You get these sort of squawking characters that might harken back to something that's on the N64, almost like a Banjo Kazooie type of style that I get at times. And when you think of pinball game, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way at all, you don't think of oh, this giant map where you can explore every corner. But your game is huge. So when you when you first started. Uh, prototyping this game and concepting this game, was a scale like this a goal from the start, or did that just build over time?
1: Oh, that definitely just built over time. Um, I, I guess that's part of the, the luxurious part of being in an indie. You don't really have to explain what you're doing to anyone, including yourself. <laughs> um, so you can, you know, start in one corner of what you're working on and, and sort of take it as it Comes, like, just iter- to, uh, iterate until you feel that there's something there, a direction you want to go in and, like, expand some areas. So, like, when we started, the only thing we had as a concept was, like, how, what would a pinball adventure game look like? Uh, what would happen if you stitched uh, pinball mechanics together in a, in a larger area and added a narrative to it? Um, and that was me and, and my co-founder, Matthias Snögg, who sort of picked that idea up and, and see saw where, where it took us um, and it was meant to be a one-year project um, and it could have been a one-year project I guess um, but we felt that we, we we kept feeling that the idea had legs and we wanted to expand it we wanted to make it bigger and then um, sort of we sort of found what the concept was and um, about maybe two years into the project, when we brought on a level designer, uh, he was an, initially an intern, Linus Larson, uh, who's a fantastic level designer. Uh, and after his internship, he, we hired him and felt that we could tackle a much uh, more level design intensive style of game. Um, and that's when we started to build like the the world, um, and then like the scope keeps changing as you work on it. But I think we we knew what we were looking for at that point. I see that that's fascinating, especially for
0: people who might not know about game design. When you say that two years into it, that's when you started to kind of nail down the concept of it. So when you think of like a five year development cycle, I think people might assume like, oh, you had this idea pretty early on in year one, and then you work on it all five years, but it didn't exactly go that way. So what was kind of the timeline for how this stuff rolled out? I mean, so it was two years of concepting and then the last three years were full-blown production, or was it something different?
1: Um, yeah, it's it's hard to categorize like that almost. Um, like the first year and a half, we were without the level designers. Obviously, the, the, the prototyping and the work we did was leaning towards on, on the sort of uh, game mechanical and the art style and, and all all that kind of stuff. And there's still plenty to do there. Um, but we sort of, we had a, a slightly different game in mind because you need to design the game based on your team, right? Yeah. Um, so it was uh, smaller in a sense and more... Um, and trying to get more gameplay time out of individual areas so there wasn't so much level design going into the game and and once we sort of decided that we needed a level designer we started expanding on that concept and and for a long long time we sort of measured the amount of time spent on every screen almost and, and trying to like we need at least 10 minutes on every screen for this kind of budget-like thinking uh, for this to work. Mm. Um, but then that was based on a bunch of, bunch of assumptions of how long it took to art up specific areas and everything. And, and once we started to get more experience in in sort of taking an area from from nothing into uh, something that was arted up, we could make much better judgment calls on, on, on uh, how big scale, Scale-wise, scope-wise, um, how dense the mechanics, the gameplay, um, even stuff like um, how much, uh, how many characters, like NPC characters, how expensive are those? It's it's very, it's all an intricate piece of uh, what's easily accessible for you as a team to do, what's cheap for you to do, uh, rather than. I have an idea, let's do that, and then sort of spend the time it takes to to get that feature in there. It's more like what what would be easy, easy wins for us to get into the game and then sort of focus on that and see what works and what doesn't and, and then just keep it ready. So anyway, um, like we started off as in as a pinball adventure and and it's, for me, like there are a couple of sort of, uh turns in the development. One was when we joke jokingly started to call the game an open world pinball game, which definitely was a joke uh, uh, initially, because it's like I don't there's a lot of people that never would call a side scroller an open world game either way. But um once we started joking about that, we also planted that idea in our heads: what, what does that mean? And everyone reacted in the same way when we pitched the like that was the best elevator pitch i had in the game ever like tell someone hey we're making an open world pinball game huh? what <laughs> I, what is that and everyone reacted like that and you could like had an an opening to explain what the game was um and so because we kind of liked that reaction we also started thinking about what that would mean and that meant going away from the more pinball table-like areas, like more focused um, focused areas with two flippers in the down and, and all that kind of stuff, um, and more make it a, a seamless, traversal, more, a more platforming experience with pinball mechanics in it. Um, and there was a, another left turn we had in the development that was... Um, when we had a focus test, uh, we did a lot of focus tests during this whole development um, to sort of see what people liked and didn't like about the whole the whole idea, what they got and what they didn't get. Um, and we had this uh, tester that uh, came and had a cup of coffee in his hand and played the game and every 30 seconds or so tried to take a sip of his coffee. Um, but whenever he tried doing that, something happened on the screen and he had to abort taking a sip of coffee and, and oh, pick up the controller and, and constantly react to what the game was. And we haven't, like, after that focus test was discussed, like, is this the game we want to make? This kind of rel- relentless pacing where you don't even have time to 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 take a sip of coffee um uh, and that's sort of when we've decided and this partly based on, on how we wanted the game to look. It looks very nice, very uh, calm. Uh, so the gameplay should be too. So suddenly we, we were sort of trying to uh, pull down the, the, the pace of the game make it much, much more chill make it uh, more explorational and, and inviting accessible uh, rather than the more hardcore pinball game that that some people expect when you just talk about what the game is. This is the weirdest
0: comparison I'm ever going to make, but uh, my team made uh, a horror game a while back a couple years back and we had that idea of you have to have breaks in the tension in the insanity Mm -hmm. so that people can kind of catch their breath and i am not calling your game a horror game because as far as it gets away but (laughs) but that's kind of a similar idea of you can't constantly be doing something you have to have these slower moments especially if what you're doing is an adventure game that yeah. you mentioned has this look has this sort of tranquil nature that you want to be able to relax a second and maybe take a sip of coffee so that you're not mm. constantly moving uh, and it's your game it, it's hard to there wasn't really a, a perfect blueprint for you guys to model yourselves after because when you say open world pinball game people raise an eyebrow because that is so different than what is out there and i think the combination in the end is incredible I mean again it's one of my favorite games of the year but did you take a lot of time effort and energy to position the game to publishers and even maybe possible consumers as more than just a video game pinball because it is this vast open world with platforming elements this charming story and so much to collect but not everyone loves pinball so they might immediately just shut their brain off when they hear pinball like this is a pinball game so did the hey it's also a pinball game but there's so much more to it did that was that something you were trying to get across as much as possible so that people didn't just shut down when they heard it's a pinball game
1: yeah most definitely it was something we identified really early on as something we had to tackle and and it's um it's probably the the hardest hardest thing uh we we are trying to tackle um who is this game for um, and even like some people react very positively to to a wacky genre combination like open world pinball um, but most like to get someone interested to consider buying the game it needs to be something that you can relate to in some way and and obviously we have pinball mechanics in there. But at the same time, that might not be the most important part of what the game is. It's it's more an adventure game than a pinball game, pinball game in my mind, and, and uh, the pinball thing is sort of the the twist uh, of of this kind of Metroidvania style game. Um, and for example, we we had a hard time um, figuring out the name of the game. Um, for a long time, it was called Pinball Stories, mm. uh, which is a name I really like uh, because it's sort of it's pinball and there's there's an av- adventure to it. Um, it's far, na- far, far enough away from being feeling like a pinball table name, um, but at the same time, we felt it was too too much pinball, to yeah. to too upfront about being. So we decided against. Um, having pinball in the name um, and that's when we sort of decided to make it a more adventurish name um, Yoko's Island Express Actually, it's kind of funny That's that might be the thing that I'm the least pleased with <laughs> on this project uh, how the name turned out, I, I love the name but honestly no one on the, on the team uh, got the, the link with uh, Yo- Yoshi's Island. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whenever, especially if Nintendo, for example, is posting a video uh, about Yoko's Island Express, all the comments are about, oh, I thought this was Yoshi's Island. Um, and and maybe that helps, and maybe it doesn't. I don't know, but it's like... <laughs> that was def- definitely not the intention. Yeah. Um, but I, either way, like, uh, Yoko's Island Express feels like a adventurous game, and that was definitely intentional to sort of move away from the initial uh, perception of it being uh, just another pinball game.
0: Naming games seems impossible. I'm Again, I'm just early on in game development. I was game media and just game development now. And going through meetings where we're going through names, we have this entire like giant doc going through. I'm like, man, this is... Everyone always makes fun of video game names from the outside. Like, oh, why would you call it this? Or how did you come up with that? But God, is it difficult to actually come up with something that's catchy, that's not too long, that people can kind of boil down to maybe a one-syllable thing they can just say to their friends? Like, oh, PUBG? Or, oh, Fortnite? That just... Like like it it really works out in a lot of way, like one or two syllables seems to work, but I I like your name and it does remind me of adventure games. And I really oddly, even though it is this 2D thing, it's this open world thing, it's this pinball thing. It reminds me of some of those kind of mascot-based platformers that put an emphasis on collectibles back on the Nintendo 64 era, because those were some of my favorite games growing up, the Banjo-Kazooies of the world. I mean, you know, Mario 64 is the easy example, but even Donkey Kong 64, where you're exploring kind of this tranquil, fun, colorful area, and a lot of the main stuff you're doing is collecting stuff, so... did you take inspiration from things like Banjo-Kazooie and from platformers in that area? And did you feel like you had to really mix it up to find success in that realm in 2018? Because we don't see a lot of adventure games with mascots anymore that find a lot of success.
1: Yeah, um, I think that was almost a surprise to us when we, you know, chose that path. Uh, when we were looking for references Um that there weren't too many modern modern takes in that space, like colorful, full, happy, you say mascot-based, I guess that's that's a name for it. Um, ins- I'm not sure how inspired we were, like, I never played Banjo-Kazooie. I, I actually had, um, I went the, the path of, of the home computers rather mm. than the video game systems. Uh, so I played on the Commodore 64 and the Amiga. Um, And skipped, like, it was when I got the Game Boy Color or something, I I started to catch up on all the the classics from the NES and SNES area. Um, So I guess, like, games like Jack and Dexter and and those ones, I... uh, Beyond Good and Evil is really nice, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) absolutely. Uh, But, um, like, doing a colorful, I think that was something that I wanted to do, and and Matthias, like, uh, uh, our artist, uh, was intrigued by doing, like, we were, Matthias and me used to work uh, together back at Starbreeze, Uh, actually, speaking of long names, uh, the Chronicles of Riddick Escape from Butcher Bay (laughs) Developers Cut, (laughs) That's my favorite. You can't um, get a great
0: like acronym or anything out of that one. <laughs>
1: um, and like working on the darkness. Those were really dark, gritty games. And, and most of Matthias' experience in video games was was from there. And so it was kind of interesting for him to tackle something a little bit more happy, something more relaxing and, and friendly. Um, I felt that... Uh, It was a good way to go because the the gameplay is so accessible like pretty much Two button input left and right. You can walk left or right or you can use the left and right uh, flipper Um, So making it accessible uh, Was something that we wanted to do Um, I'm not sure if the inspiration come from there i think i would say it came more from uh things like uh, Miyazaki movies mm. uh, which are also colorful and friendly like if you look at totoro it's uh, those guys are plushies right they are beautiful and very just like our game like a lot of nature infused with the characters that are presented um so we looked at lo- looked a lot of, uh, on those, yeah, um, and then it's just like doing what we felt worked for the game. Like I guess we we picked a Caribbean or Tiki theme fairly early because we kind of like like that theme, uh, and we wanted it to take place on a on an island, so it kind of worked here's the dumbest question i'll probably ask <laughs> you today how did you get the game to
0: look so damn good because it's one of those <laughs> immediately striking like my roommate watching it and being like what are you playing this looks incredible and i had that moment kind of throughout it, what it, you said that's kind of the inspiration in terms of like the island and uh having this sort of tiki theme but what allowed you to make this game look so good
1: well, Matthias, in a word, I guess. Mm. <laughs> he is a really good painter. Like he used to work uh, as a concept artist at Starbreeze and an art director and um, we developed the the tools and technology to to make the most of his concept art skills I, or painting skills, I would say. Um the whole the whole game is uh, like it's a single painting, the whole thing. Like there, there is we we don't use tiling or anything like that. So every screen is, is hand handcrafted, uh, and he's really quick at painting. But it's also a really good game, a really big game. I mean, um, so it's also an explanation why it took so long to to get this game ready. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of area to cover in paint, and because. You started making this game
0: in 2013 and it didn't come out for five years later. Were you forced to make certain modifications along the way to make sure it remained modern and relevant to what was popular at that time. I think your game kind of <laughs> works in any era. Like It, it is different enough that it, you don't need to be like, oh, well, suddenly MMOs aren't popular, so we can't release an MMO, or suddenly turn-based RPGs aren't popular, we can't do that. You kind of work no matter what, but did the changing market force you to make big alterations as you were actually
1: continuing to develop the game? Um, not from a game design standpoint as, as you say, like, open-world pinball is kind of timeless. <laughs> it, uh, like, it, it's um, fresh enough so you don't feel that you need to sort of... You're missing your window of doing a survival game or something like that, which I, I'm sure some, some people are feeling out there right now, for example. Um, or Battle Royale, which is the hottest trend. Like, mm. if you start making a Battle Royale game today, who knows? I would yeah. think we look in a few years, um, but since we were like, I guess, like Metroidvania has been trendy, um, so we could have missed that. I it's still trendy, so we haven't, we didn't. Um, but no, from a game uh, design standpoint, it didn't uh, didn't feel like we had to adapt. Uh, from a business standpoint, sure, um, and when we started working on this game the, the game I worked on before or app I would say, Colors 3D for the Nintendo 3DS like mm. a, a painting app where you got to paint in 3D um, that did really well on the 3DS and I felt that was a good platform to work on so when we started working on this game we definitely considered the 3DS as a, a target platform uh, but since the development took longer, that's became less relevant and then the switch turned out to be a huge success so that was a nice trade uh, from the 3ds to the switch uh, in terms of platforms um, so um, a little bit in terms of platform because that that does uh, impact um uh, everything like what platforms you're targeting um, if mobile would like uh, let's say tablets would have blown up and be a, a a like fantastic market for games. We probably would have positioned our game as a as a tablet game instead, um, and that would have changed the design. It would have changed a lot of things, I guess. Um, and then I guess when we signed with our publisher Team 17, uh, we decided to do a simultaneous launch on on the four platforms, which also. Had a lot of impact on on how we uh, finalized the development of, of this game.
0: I mean, you mentioned the Switch before, and that has to be that had to be a really cool moment for you as you're developing this game to see the Switch come out and be as successful as it was. Because boy, is your game perfect on the <laughs> Nintendo Switch! Like it just makes almost too much sense as soon as you start playing it and have that console in your hand. You're like oh, this is just a Switch exclusive, right? Like this was designed with the Switch in mind. You almost have that feeling. So did that during development, when you saw how well the Switch was doing and you also saw the fact that people were starving and still are starving for games on it. People just want everything on their Switch. They want to be able to play it on the plane or you know, just be in bed and play the game. So was that kind of the moment of, oh, this could be something really big for us?
1: Yeah, well, definitely. I love the I love the Switch. It's a great platform. Like the game looks identical on on every console. Uh, and the Switch does have the benefit of being handheld as well, so that's very nice. Um, interestingly, I think like uh, a lot of people, I think referenced like this feels like a Nintendo style game uh, just based on how it looked. Um, A lot of people also said this looks like a mobile game which we hated hearing (laughs) (laughs) but but for for more like more uh, classical gamers uh they felt like uh like this should be on a nintendo platform so when the 3ds 3ds life cycle were sort of starting to to, when the sales started to slow down and everything uh, and the switch hadn't started selling yet we felt like it was a shame that there wasn't a, a, a Nintendo platform on the horizon that that would be a good bet because the Wii U wasn't really selling much. Um, so when the Switch was a success, it felt like that was... I feel that was lucky for us. Um, because, as you say, a lot of people sort of feel that this works well on their platform. Yeah. Did it
0: take a lot of time to port it to the switch like you said it's simultaneous release on four consoles which is not easy especially for a smaller team it was a large chunk of development just making sure this thing ran the same across all platforms
1: um, i was sort of expecting that to be a big hassle especially since we have our own technology um, but it wasn't too bad actually um, they are all like all the the current generation of consoles are very nicely put together uh like they are very similar hardware wise uh, but more importantly the the software side the the sdk that you use is is very very developer friendly and since our game is not utilizing like online multiplayer or Mm. some of the stuff that's traditionally hard to do like there's a lot of uh Work per platform since we didn't do that. It, it wasn't bad at all for any platform like um, I hadn't released on any of these current generation oh, wow. Consoles before so like we had to to bring we developed on PC mainly so Everything was sort of running on PC and then we had to make sure it ran on on the three consoles um, but it was fairly smooth Oh wow,
0: that's surprising. And of course, I'm not asking you to release any sales data or anything like that. But do you look at which console is doing best? Are you able to kind of get that data and see, like, all right, maybe we should focus more on this in the future or anything like that? Do do you do you ever get interested in which console is succeeding?
1: Uh, <laughs> of course, like you, you need that's a business uh, thing to take into account for your next project. Uh, what's good right now, especially for Indus, I think that. Well, at least our kind of Indies that don't do uh, technical, technologically intensive projects, is that uh, that you can release on all of them, uh, so you don't have to, you know, place your bets on a single console. Um, Like the 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 Xbox One and the PlayStation Four both are like really strong machines and the the switch is handled so they are a little bit different Um, but like most stuff you do can work on all platforms like uh, i saw the wolfenstein 2 came out on switch the other day Mm. that's that's a very technologically difficult game to get out on 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 the switch but they get it out there it's it's not that way off so that's a really good thing for for any developer that you can sort of design for multi-platform without making too much much sacrifices um unless i guess you're you know targeting some uh unique feature on any of the consoles like vr for example then you have to do playstation vr or something like that Uh, but no, it's it's a really good time uh, to be uh, in the developer, also developing for console.
0: It also has to be a little bit of a weird time. Like let's say tomorrow you just started up a new project that you expected would come out in two years, so that puts you right in that twenty twenty zone. We don't know what are there going to be new consoles at that point uh, is is the ps are the ps4 and the xbox one going to be the only ones out there is it gonna be a ps5 uh, you mentioned before that it's kind of useful for you to not do something that's really you know demanding in terms of the visuals you do a cool art style would you like if you were talking to other indies right now would you recommend like make sure you don't do something that relies too much on hardware since we don't really know what the hardware is going to look like in two years is that the best way to handle it during
1: this time of transition Ooh, that's a tough question. I don't know. It, it, like, because we don't know how things are looking to like in two years. I would guess that the current generation will still be doing really well in two years. So, um, unless you make a five-year project, yeah, <laughs> then you're screwed. So I don't know. It's difficult. Like, I, I, I personally don't expect like two revolutionary things to happen in the next five years Um, so but i also think like most indies like these are problems more for AAA. triple a i think um that do enormous investments in in r&d and technology and and have these enormous teams where the burn rate is just insane so if you get delayed by half a year it's like yeah it's it's so expensive like for for most indies we keep the costs so low so we can usually adapt quite well to to challenges and opportunities as they come uh and speaking
0: of AAA development compared to working somewhere like let's say Starbreeze and LucasArts Mm and how difficult was it and is it still to get the message out there about your game overall because you do have a great publisher you do have people out there who are spreading the word uh, and your game has been getting really positive buzz in terms of quality but there are more indie games than ever especially since you first started doing this in 2013 when the the indie landscape was very different so how have you and how can new devs kind of make a splash when every single day on steam and on different stores there's another it feels like there's another 12 games out there
1: it's probably more yeah it's it's, it's insane um i have no clue honestly um i you know the the previous project i did i did did it was also kind of an experiment to do everything on my own I did like uh, the development well, it was pretty much a one-man project with uh, a little bit of help of outsourcing friends um, UI and stuff uh, but I also did uh, the publishing part myself with PR and everything and that what worked great but it also got me to realize what I how I wanted to work and what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do and what I didn't want to do was sort of being on the PR and on the marketing, doing the selling your product. I'm really bad at that. And it's really hard um, and n- totally not for me. Um, <laughs> and being an indie developer, like if you were an indie developer for five years, that's how you got noticed. Like you were super active on Twitter, uh, you build these communities and all that kind of stuff. Um, today, it's different. Um, it's really hard to get noticed either way. And building a community and stuff, that's one way of doing it, but it's not as effective anymore. you It doesn't help to just be on Twitter and, and post stuff about your game. There's too many games doing that, too many developers doing that. So right now, it seems like, the sweet spot is is to find one of the the good indie publishers and have them help you re- reach through the noise. Um, but that's today, like, and it's been changing so quickly. Um, you know, with the streamers being the most important uh, way to to get the word of of your game out there. That that wasn't the case a few years ago, and I sort of expect it to be. Keep changing, so I have no clue um, what <laughs> what indie developers can do is is make good games and and try to react to the changing landscapes. Um, I'm I'm not a believer in the in the apocalypse kind of scenario. There's still like if you do a good game and like you will still do well. There there's still room for all the good games that are being developed out there yeah um, so that needs to be the primary focus and then you just need to be open to whatever is needed to to how to reach your your consumers and use whatever skills you have in that area of course like some people love the social media stuff and, and do that fantastically well um, and others like we, manage to reach out to a publisher and have them them be interested in the game and help us take us to events and stuff like that. That's super important as well. So it's just, yeah, go with the wind. (laughs) Well, what leads to success is such a,
0: it's a moving target, right? Where it seems like one year it's social media, another year it's just like, oh, you can kind of like just self-publish it and it'll find success because there's not that much stuff out there. But now it's, it's really hard to know you can make an incredible game take all this time on it and if it's not positioned correctly or comes out at the wrong time or just doesn't pick up on certain aspects it will somehow just be gone in a week or so. But then there's um, the creators of Sable, which was that really amazing looking indie game out of E3. I just had them on the podcast. And, you know, they can post a GIF now on Twitter and suddenly it's getting like 5,000 retweets because the game is just so visually striking. But I I think like you said just before, sometimes right now it feels like you just need to find the best indie publishers out there to Mm -hmm. support you and to position you in the right way. Because if you're a programmer or level designer art person you might not like you said you maybe you don't care about the pr aspect of this you just want to make cool games you want to make the stuff you want to make and you're not worried about getting it out there and trying to sell your idea to you know everyone in the world so that you're successful in that way but it's it's just so hard to know
1: the right way to tackle this stuff but i mean (laughs) I don't think there is a right way. It's definitely it's changing every time, and every developer is different, and every game is different. And yeah, it, it's definitely something that needs to be taken into account when you develop the game, though. Like, as I mentioned, our conundrum with how we should name the game. That's that's definitely a a marketing kind of approach to what the name should be. It's not like how should. What would make what name would make this game the best game? No, it's like what name will get people thinking right about this this game before they buy it. So, like, it needs to be a very eyes open kind of thinking for for what you'd make. And again, maybe don't make Battle Royale games right now.
0: Yeah, it might not be the best idea if you're making a AAA battle royale game that's coming out in two years. Good luck, because who knows what the hell that landscape will yeah. look at by then. Or, and it,
1: or maybe it works. Maybe I, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised if that happens either
0: maybe it's the new capture the flag and it's just like a new game mode that you include in a game no matter what and i I just don't know at this point the name thing is super weird though because it it can make or break a game but then you 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 create a game and call it player unknowns battlegrounds which sounds like a (laughs) fake name that no one would ever call a serious thing and look at that so i don't know anything about anything is all i've learned uh we did talk about reviews before personally do you put a lot of weight into reviews even though you're not watching let's plays because it might drive you crazy i mean you have a strong metacritic and i think quality wise is going to be this is going to end up on a lot of top 10 you know lists at the end of the year and it will very definitely be on mine but has do you think reviews at this time actually do lead to better sales do you and you also take a lot of the criticism the heart do you spend a lot of time after your game comes out reading these and and kind of studying what people liked what people didn't like
1: I like reviews. Like that's that's, for me, that's something that's nice to digest um, because it's it's usually very well thought out criticism and and summary of, of people's experience with the game. So for me, that's that's definitely something I I take to heart rather than some throwaway comment of on Twitter or or something like that. Um, and it's very rewarding as well if some someone spends a lot of time telling that they they really like the game when you made yeah. the game. It's 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 very nice to read. Um, so I like that. I'm honestly not sure how much it's tied to sales. I know people have been saying that it's sort of been constantly dropping in in terms of how important reviewers are for sale and, and streamers have taken its place, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I'm not <laughs> sure I wanna know. Uh, it's it's you can't measure like what made a game successful. Um, you can sort of guess and, and look at correlations and stuff like that. But I don't know. Yeah. I like reviews. I'm not sure if they matter, but it's it's nice to read.
0: Yeah, it, it's they are weird. As so, I wrote reviews for you know two or three years at Gamespot and IGN, and there's definitely moments of I wonder what impact this actually has. Because as someone who writes criticism, you can't think about hey, if I give a bad score to someone, it might hurt their product because that's not the point of it. But it is this yeah. weird zone that like the, the bigger the site you write for the more you're like how much is what i'm writing affecting the this game and maybe you know maybe not at all maybe, maybe it really doesn't do anything but it's still something that every time i think about it i'm like i, I just wonder it, it's such a weird thing did you have a favorite review of this game like is there one that stands out that you read and you're like this person really got it they got what we were going for i'm asking you to pick favorites just so you can yeah. it, somehow <laughs> yeah. be blacklisted on all these other sites <laughs>
1: I usually skim through stuff like I, I don't read it as as a piece. I'm I'm sort of picking out um, stuff. Like I read the the criticism most uh, intensely because that's like that's useful useful information in there. Uh, I like the funny ones. Otherwise, like <laughs> uh, I remember we picked out a, a bunch of quotes I, um, when we had the release party and read up uh read up to to the people at the party like some funny quotes like I loved Eurogamers, feels like pure sunshine. That was, <laughs> well, that was really nice. nice. Yeah. Uh, but there was a bunch of funny ones. With, uh, More secrets than the Bush administration. I have that quote. <laughs> Oh, I'm jealous I didn't write that now.
0: That's a really <laughs> good quote. Oh, my God. Um, last thing, and again, I super appreciate your time. Uh, where can people find you and your team on social media? And what are really your plans moving forward with the game? You said it was you know, not a lot of fires to put out at launch or anything like that. But what can people expect from the game moving forward?
1: Um... Ooh, too early to say I guess. Like we've okay. been we've been taking some time off in here in sunny Sweden. It's been amazing weather since we released the game. Um and sort of focusing on on the short-term plan for Yuca design. Well, like we're releasing um, a patch in a few weeks and there's a demo coming out and some stuff like that. Um, after that, we we need to sit down and, and discuss exactly what we want to do. So it's I I guess it's too too early to say. Yeah, like um, you can find uh, Villa Gorilla on Google. I guess uh, we also like Yoke Game is the Twitch handle for the game. Uh, my personal one is Lard, double Lerd, double uh, L E R D. Feel free to hook me up there, and I'll answer. Uh, but yeah, we are not that active on social media as individuals, uh, which is why we got a publisher to help us with that. (laughs) (laughs) Never a bad idea.
0: Uh, Jens, thanks so much for doing this. This, Your game was this fun surprise kind of out of nowhere that I, I saw gaining some traction and some buzz on Twitter and uh, looked into it and immediately fell in love and had my roommate over and over saying this is incredible, which I think is always a great sign. Um, I'm <laughs> guessing at this point it feels surreal to finally have this game out in the world after five years, but uh, definitely one of my favorites of the year, and it's it's fully made me excited for... I'm not going to rush you in whatever you're doing next, but whenever you do have
1: something to talk about, I, I can't wait to see what that actually is. That sounds good. It makes me very happy to hear that you like the game, and it's so nice to... To have it out there and and have people see it and and see it for what it is like a lot of people see it as a a very fresh fun experience and and that makes us very happy yeah totally fresh and
0: i i hope it sells a billion copies that's all i have to say so i do too thank you very much (laughs) (laughs) so thanks again for coming on and thanks everyone for listening hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.